Good morning, good morning, Rabotai. Welcome to Breakfast on the Class. Breakfast on the Class today is sponsored <coughs> and dedicated for the speedy and complete refuash of the Ma of Yishak ben Hanon, Hanom Hana and Abigail Peril Bates. They're sponsored anonymously. As well, Breakfast on the Class is dedicated for the speedy and complete refuash of the Ma of Adel, Yael Batlea by Lillian and Jack Sroor and family. Breakfast on the Class is dedicated loving memory of Morris Sutton, Alava Shalom, Lilunishman Moshe ben Adel. Allah uh, Shalom by the Edmund J. Safra Synagogue, Ruach Began Eden, and we wish a tremendous amount of Nechama uh, to be uh, shared with the entire family, with his dear wife, with his, uh, with his uh, boys. Bezat Hashem, we should be zocheh to experience and to feel only happy occasions moving forward in the entire family. <laughs> Breakfast in the class is also dedicated loving memory of Tobi Baruch, Lilu Nishmat Tova Ben Rut, uh, sponsored by Norma and Murray Dayan. And finally, dedicated for the speedy and fuash lima of Mia Tova Batchana Bezrat Hashem. My friends, the Pasuk says something um, which is really interesting. We read about the Jewish people when they come to the Yamsuf and uh, the Jewish people uh, enter into the Yamsuf, they're trying to be saved. The Egyptians that have tormented them for so long are right on their heels. They're following them, uh, chasing them down. And they chase them literally into the ocean. The Jewish people we know come out the other side and the Egyptians at that moment are in a sea that begins to collapse upon itself and it starts to drown and get rid of these people who've hurt and maimed and, and tortured these Jews for so long and the Pasuk tells us something super interesting. I'm going to read you three different words that the uh, Shira says in Pasha Peshalach. Yaredu bimsolot, they went down in the depths, kemo aven, like a stone. A few Pesukim later, it tells us, yochalemo, the sea, it ate them, so to speak. It took them down how? Kakash, like straw. And finally, a few Pesukim after that, it tells us, Salelu ka'oferet b'mayim adirim. They drowned, they sunk like lead in the, in the deepest waters. Now, these three uh, uh, explanations, these three items, they sink at a very different rate, our rabbis tell us. Right? Obviously, you take a piece of straw, you stick it in uh, stormy waters. What happens? The water smashes it this way, the water smashes it that way. It takes a very long time. It keeps getting uh, buffeted around, slammed by each of the uh, uh, each progressive wave, hit again and again and again and again and again. A stone, a stone sinks, but a, a piece of lead, which is the densest of materials, that sinks the fastest. What are these three things uh, referring to? And Rashi on the spot says, Harishaim Kakash, the wicked ones of the Egyptians, they were like straw. Holchim Mitarfim, they would go back and forth and be ripped apart. Olim Viordim, up and down, again and again and again. Benonim, the middle of the range type of uh, Egyptian, your average Egyptian tormentor. <clears throat> Ka'evin, went down like a stone, drowned at the bottom of the ocean. Vakshirim, and the best amongst them, the holy, the, ko- the kosher ones, Kaoferet went down <clears throat> like lead. They suffered the least. Now, all of these people are chasing the Jews. All of these people were complicit in this story. We don't have stories like you have in Poland or uh, throughout the Holocaust of, you know, the righteous amongst the nations, the righteous Egyptians that were hiding Jewish slaves in their house. We don't read stories like that. We don't find out about any such people. So who are these righteous Egyptians? Who are they? 
And it seems clear that we're not, we don't mean here people that were righteous per se, but we mean that they were righteous as compared to. And I want to read, with you, read to you something that I read in the Sefer Midesh Metecha. He says something that I found super interesting. He says, who were these three groups? The Rishaim, the Benonim, and the Kshirim. He says, the Benonim, the middle of the road people, were the soldiers of Paro. They were the ones that were taking orders from King Paro. Paro tells them, we're going to chase the Jews. This is the mission. This is what we need to do. And they went. They would have chased the Jews the same way they would have chased the Canaanites, the same way they would have chased the Amalekites. Their king, their commander-in-chief is telling them that they're going to war. They're going to war. They're going to go kill the enemy, exactly like any other enemy. It's not about the history. It's not about who they were. It's not about the fact that they've suffered. It's not about the fact that they're Jews. It's just they're doing their job. They're still wicked people because they're willing to kill somebody that maybe perhaps doesn't deserve to be killed. But you have people like that, that this, you know, they're soldiers and they, they take orders from their generals. <clears throat> then there was another level. And it's so interesting because if you look in the Pasuk, the Pasuk says, Markevot paro v'helo. The carriages of paro and his army. Markevot paro v'helo, you know, they went down in the ocean. And the very next Pasuk, talking about those soldiers, the soldiers of Paro, the ones that came because of Paro. What does it say? They were covered by the depths. And they went down in the, in the deep like a, like a stone. Those are the Benonim. But then the next Pasuk talks about with, the, with Hashem's anger. What does He do? He destroys the people. Those were the Rishaim. Those are the people that even if Paro did not command them to go, even if Paro did not promise to reward them, even if they hated the Jews because of a self-nurtured anti-Semitism, a uh, abhorrence for these people, they would have killed the Jews for free, like it says. You know, I always thought about this when it comes to the story of, uh, of uh, the Megillah. The, the, the Gemara tells us that everyone looks at the villain in the story of the Megillah and you see Haman. But maybe in some levels, Ahasuerus was even a worse anti-Semite than Haman. Why? Haman wants to hate, destroy the Jews because they're getting in the way of his plans. He thinks that he has to give Ahasuerus a big bribe, a bribe where he's going to pay him 10,000 talents of silver in order to get him to do his bidding. What does Ahasuerus actually say? Ahasuerus tells him, keep your money. Destroy him for free, you're doing me a favor. So who is the worst anti-Semite here? The worst anti-Semite is actually Ahasuerus. So to here, the worst Rishaim were the ones that weren't doing it because they were commanded to do so. They weren't doing it because they felt that they were going to get a benefit from it. They just hated them with such a vicious hatred. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu, for those people, what does he do? He has them drown in the ocean, kakash, like straw, where they're beaten again and again and again. And perhaps that will help an anti-Semite understand what the Jewish story has and always will be. A story of repeated uh, expulsions, a story of repeated demonization. That's what they needed to experience in order to understand um, or what the Jewish people had been subjected to. And then finally you have the Benonim. Who's the Benonim? Those are the last ones, the Ksherim. Those are the last ones that are mentioned in this whole story. 
They don't come in the beginning with the soldiers. They're not interested in killing the Jews. They don't really care about Paro. They care about one thing, right? Paro says, Erdof right? I'm going to take out my sword. I'm going to chase them down. And what am I going to do? Right? Arik Kharbi, right? I'm going to take my sword. I'm going to chase them. I'm going to get it. I'm going to divide the spoils. People who came last, they just want to get paid. This has nothing to do with the Jews. They don't even care about killing the Jews. They just want to get money. Those are the Kisharim. And those, they drowned like lead. No point in dragging out uh, their punishment. Let them drown as quickly as, as possible. They're paying the price because at the end of the day, they chase the Jews into the ocean, etc., etc. Now, you look at this and you say, okay, very nice. Three different kinds, three different punishments. All right. I think there's a beautiful and a tremendous lesson here hiding. That means that when Boreo Alam looks at a bunch of terrible people, the worst people, people who don't save a nation, who don't hide them in their basements, who don't leave them alone, they're chasing them. They're trying to kill them. They're trying to go to war with them. They, no, there's, there, were not, there was nobody here that was innocent. And yet, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is capable of seeing a flavor of kosher as compared to a flavor of Benoni. A flavor of Benoni as opposed to Rasha. Every person is judged not just on what they do, but how they did what they did. If this is true for a negative thing, that the reward is such based on the innermost thoughts of the person, you're all here for the war at the end of the day. You're all going to fight a war and kill people. But you know what? You're here for the money. You're here because you were ordered to be here. You're here because you're trying to kill people. This is what you like to do. If you, did, if you won the lottery, you'd come the next day you know, to kill as many Jews as you could. Your intention, it matters. It elevates or it um, denigrates the deed that you've done. Boreo Olam, God in heaven, he looks not only at the actions that we do, like the Pasuk says, that a person, right, he sees the actions of another person. But God, he sees inside the heart and he understands what the motivations are. What drove you to do this? Was it excessive cruelty? Was it greed? Was it fear? When someone does a sin and they're afraid, or someone does a sin and they're embarrassed, that's not the same as someone who does a sin uh, because they couldn't withstand the temptation. All of them are wrong, but they're not seen all in the same light. And you know, sometimes people say to me, you know, Rabbi, you know, what's the Torah I want? There's nobody that's perfect. But nobody that's perfect makes it sound like there's only two different types of people in the world. Perfect people, and people who are not perfect. And you know what? Almost all of us fall into the category of not perfect. There's so many shades here of imperfection. There's so many shades. And Boreo Olam, he understands, God never understands our desires. He understands when we do the wrong thing because of peer pressure. Or whether it's an internally motivated thing. Am I doing it even if no one's looking? The same way this is true about sin, it's also true about mitzvot. And the levels of compassion, and the levels of kindness, and the levels of empathy or sympathy that a person feels when they're doing an act 
of kedusha, of tzedakah, of of charity, of uh, giving advice, of guidance, of raising someone's spirits, they are a direct indicator of how special, how important the mitzvah is, and how great the reward is going to be for doing that mitzvah. Rabbi I want to share with you an example of this concept, of what it looks like to care for somebody else, even if uh, perhaps, you know, you don't have to do something. No one is looking. Paro didn't command you to do it. Uh, you, there's no great reward on the other side of it. You're doing it just because. The same way an anti-Semite doesn't need any other external benefit in order to hate on a Jew. He could hate a Jew. He could try and do everything he can, even if it doesn't help him. You know, imagine an anti-Semite working for a Jewish organization who shows his anti-Semitism. And it gets him fired. Like, that's a person who is willing to have misirut nefesh for his anti-Semitism, right? So too, when it comes to acts of kindness, of compassion, of awareness. I was at a wedding last night, the beautiful wedding of the Perlstein family to the Teichman family, Mazal Tov and Mabruk, to everyone on both sides. And I witnessed something that blew me away. Judah Perlstein is a, a good friend of mine. And um, I met him because I was so close with his son-in-law, Nelly Gertner. And I'm sitting at this wedding. I'm sitting next to a rabbi. And the rabbi's name is Rabbi Efrati. And at this table, Rabbi Efrati is sitting there. And all of a sudden, who comes over to the table? None other but Judah Prostein. Literally on the night of his daughter's wedding. What goes through your head when your daughter gets married? I'll tell you, I remember. There's so much, so many emotions. So many things. So many people to say hello to, so many people to greet, so many people to make feel welcome, making sure that the band is working, that the waiters, that everything is exactly the way you and your wife and your daughter hoped for on your big day. I remember being completely consumed uh, at my daughter's wedding. And then this man, Judah, comes over to the table and puts down in front of Rabbi Efrati a birthday cake. Could you believe it? He remembered on that night that there was a guest at his, at his simcha, at one of his tables, whose birthday was that night. And if he's here at the wedding, he's not celebrating his birthday at home, someone should get him a cake. He didn't stay for 25 minutes. He didn't have 25 minutes to stay. But he came over to put a, in front of this rabbi a birthday. Who does that? Who thinks like that? Whose motivation is it? Is it to overlook, perhaps, what's going on, the things that you're busy with, and to be busy with the thoughts and feelings of someone else? Ha'elohim levav. God designs three different punishments for three people who are in the same place in the same time fighting the same war against the Jews because in their heart of hearts, there was a different thought. You know, and some people, they get a birthday cake and they have the video camera follow them so that everyone will know. And they make a big announcement. Everyone will know how kind and compassionate they are. He didn't say anything. At this table, the only two people sitting there at that moment was me and Rabbi Efrati. He put the cake down, didn't make a big deal about it. Just walked away after wishing um, him a happy birthday. I was so impressed. But my friends, it's one thing to almost ignore what's going on in your life. Every once in a while you hear about somebody who does something that is superhuman. Not just that they don't think only about themselves, but that they overcome something 
they overcome an overwhelming uh, issue, need, feeling, hurt, pain, to be able to be there for someone else. And just this past week, I heard a story from Rabbi Besser that I feel has to be shared. There was a young couple uh, who was going through, unfortunately, some difficulties in their marriage. And they asked to come to speak to Rav Shmuel Kamenetsky, Shalita. He's the Rosh Hashiva in Philadelphia. The rabbi says, sure, of course, no problem. Come meet me at this and this time. They come to the house. And as they come in, the rabbi says, listen, I know we're supposed to speak now about Shalom Bayit, you know. He says, but is there any way I could speak to you? I think maybe only the husband turned up. He says, is there any way that we could have this meeting instead of in my house, in the car? There's a patient I need to visit in the hospital. He says, okay, no problem. The rabbi gets in the car. They're talking about this man's issue, trying to figure out how to solve the problem, trying to give him his best advice. He arrives at the hospital. He says, I'm really sorry for uh, having to you know, interrupt the meeting. It's okay, I'm just going to go and see this patient, um, and you know, I'll be back as soon, as soon as I can. Anyway, the rabbi goes. Uh, to see the patient. After a short while, he comes back downstairs and he says to the man, okay, I saw the patient. The man says, what do you mean, you ready to go? He said, the patient that I had to come see was my wife. And she just passed away. The man is like, ah, ah, ah. And he says, and now, my obligation for Shalom Bayit has come to a close. Let's begin to work on yours. The story just blew my mind. First of all, how in the world could someone think of anyone but themselves at a moment of such great personal loss? How can he do that? How can he carry on the conversation? How can he not roll up in a ball on the floor and cry? How can he not want to be taken home? How easy would it be to say to this person, I really can't do this right now. I'm so sorry. I'm sure you'll understand. Would he have understood? Of course he would have understood. Of course he would have said to him, you know, please rabbi, I'll come back another time. Don't worry about it. It'll, uh, you know, I'll, I'll come back after the, everything's over. Please take this time for yourself. You have to understand. That's why the rabbi didn't tell him when they got in the car, I need to go see my wife to say goodbye. He told him I need to go see a patient in the hospital. So the man would feel free to share his problems. He knows that his marriage is on the rocks, the rabbi. He knows if he says to him what's really going on, he's not going to share. He's not going to be able to help him. He's not going to be able to save his marriage. But what greatness of spirit are we witnessing in Rav Shmuel Shalita? His wife passed away this week, so the story is fresh. My friends, think for a moment of the compassion, of the space you have in yourself to think about someone else. And for most of us, what do we do? We spend all of our emotional capital on our own stuff. And how much do we have left for someone else? A couple of minutes. If someone starts to tell you their life problems, you're like, oh, you know, they, he kept me there for 15 minutes. That's how sometimes we react. 
someone asks for something, you, see, you know, you tell yourself, oh, you know, I had to give him this amount of money, the guy kept calling me. But I think what we learn from, unfortunately, the punishment that was meted out on the Egyptians is to understand that HaKadosh Baruch Hu looks inside and sees what kind of heart did you have when you did this mitzvah. How did you phrase the words to him? Okay, let's have the meeting. You know, I, I feel you need to take me to the hospital now. I need to go say goodbye to my wife. The guy, even if you convinced him to talk out distracted as he's going to be, is this, I find this to be fascinating. You know, when we see the Gidolim, sometimes we think we're very far away from that, and we are. There's no doubt that that is not something that you and I could ever achieve, maybe. But at the same time, maybe we could do a little bit of that. Could we get a cake for someone at our daughter's wedding? Could we think of someone else when we have a lot on our minds? Could we say to ourselves, even though I have so much going on, this person also has a tremendous amount, can I give him a little bit more of myself? And I found the words that Rashi uses so instructive. In a world of Mitzrayim, when anti-Semitism is rampant, when people just listening to Paro and beating the Jews is the norm. A person who's not there for Paro and who's not there from hatred, he's just there from greed, which is also not a good thing. Just greed, that's called kasher. In a world which is so selfish that that's the norm. In a world where people inflict pain on each other and enjoy calling them out online. Even the tiniest levels of awareness of the pain and the suffering of another. Even the tiniest effort to help somebody. The tiniest effort to put them in front of all of your selfish concerns is already called kasher. May Hashem bless us not only to eat kosher, but to be kosher. Shabbat shalom.